0: Alright, hello everybody. Happy Sunday. Feels good to be here. Everybody enjoy their weekend? I know I have. Uh, This is the second weekend uh, Sunday that I'm going to be reading um, From Dickens' A Christmas Carol. Again, uh, I I wanted to do this last year. We didn't get to do it. But this year I decided it was a great time to try this. And last week, if you remember, I had a different type of... I, I was reading it off my tablet, but it wasn't quite enlarging enough for me to read because I'm a blind bat. So this week, I actually downloaded the Amazon version off Kindle, so now I can actually read the thing, and we're going to try and get through the second chapter of uh, A Christmas Carol. So uh, gather up your uh, goodies or whatever you need to do, pull up a chair by the fire, get some hot cocoa, because we're going to tell stories tonight. And we're, I'm going to tell, I'm going, we are going to talk about the ultimate, let me get this in position here, one these, yeah, I'm going to chat, I'm going to tell the ultimate ghost story, but hopefully I'll be able to, hopefully my reading, it'll be called out smoother than it did last week, okay? So the last time we saw that, we saw Ebenezer, he had gotten home from, we're, you know, from, from the uh, counting house. And he had encountered Jacob Marley. And uh, first it was when he, on the door knocker when he went to enter his home. And then Marley, uh, as uh, Scrooge was eating some medicinal stuff because he, he had, kind of had a cold, Marley came to him again and told him that they were, he was going to encounter three ghosts on three different nights. And this is where we're at, Chapter 2. So let me put my readers on. Again, something you don't see how just just my readers, and away we go. When Scrooge awoke, it was so dark that looking out of bed, he could scarcely distinguish the, trans, the transparent window from the opaque walls of his chamber. He was endeavoring to, to pierce the darkness with his ferret eyes when the chimes of a neighboring church struck the, struck the four quarters, so he listened for the hour. To his great astonishment, the heavy bell went on from six to seven, and from seven to eight, and regularly up to twelve and stopped. Twelve. It was past two when he went to bed. The clock was wrong. An icicle must have gotten to the works. Twelve. He touched the spring of his repeater to correct this most preposterous clock. Its rapid little pulse beat twelve and stopped. Why? It isn't possible, said Scrooge, that I could not that, that that I could have slept through a whole day and far into another night. It isn't possible that anything has happened to the sun, and this is 12 noon. The idea being an alarming one, he scrambled out of bed and groped his way to the window. He was obliged to rub the frost off with the sleeve of his dressing gown before he could see anything, and could see very little then. All he could make out was that it was still very foggy and extremely cold, and that there was no noise of people running to and fro and making a great stir, as there unquestionably would have been if night had beaten off the day and taken possession of the world. This was a great relief because three days after sight of, his, of, the, of, of, his, of this first exchange paid to Mr. Ebenezer Scrooge or his order, and so forth, would have become a mere United States security. <laughs> would have become a mere United States security if there were no delays to count by. Scrooge went to bed again, and thought and thought and thought it over and over and over, and could make nothing of it. The more he thought, the more perplexed he was, and the more he endeavoured not to think, the more he thought. Marley's ghost bothered him exceedingly. Every time he resolved within himself, after mature inquiry, that it was all a dream, his mind flew back again like a strong spring released to its final position and presented the same problem. Was it a dream or not? Scrooge lay in this state until the chime had gone three-quarters more, when he remembered on a sudden, th- all, all of a sudden that the ghost had warned him of visitation when the bell tolled one. He resolved to lie awake until the hour was past, and considering that he could no more go to sleep than go to heaven, this was perhaps the wisest resolution in his power. The quarter was long, was so long that he was that he more than once conv- was convinced that he must have sunk into a doze unconsciously and missed the clock at length. It broke upon his listening ear, ding dong, a quarter past said Scrooge, counting. "'Ding-dong!' "'Half-past,' said Scrooge. "'Ding-dong!' "'A quarter to it,' said Scrooge. "'Ding-dong!' "'The hour itself,' said Scrooge triumphantly, "'and nothing else.' "'He spoke before the hour bell sounded, "'which it now did with a dull, "'with a deep, dull, hollow melancholy one. "'Light flashed up in the room upon the instant, "'and the curtains of his bed were drawn. "'The curtains of his bed were drawn aside,' I tell you, by a hand—not the curtains at his feet, nor the curtains at his back, but those to which his, feet, his face was addressed. The curtains of his bed were drawn aside, and Scrooge, started staring—excuse started, me—and Scrooge, starting up into, the half recu- into a half recumbent attitude, found himself face to face with the unearthly visitor who drew them. As close to it as I am now to you, and I am standing in the spirit at your elbow. It was a strange figure, like a child, yet not so like a child as like an old man, viewed through some supernatural medium, which gave him the appearance of having receded from the view, and being diminished to a child's proportions. Its hair, which hung about its neck and down its back, was white, as if with age, and yet the face had not a wrinkle in it, and the tenderest bloom was on the skin. The arms were very long and muscular, the hands the same, as if its hold were, un- were of uncommon strength. Its legs and feet, most delicately formed, were like those upper members bare. It wore a tunic of the purest white, and round its waist was bound a lustrous belt, the sheen of which was beautiful. It held a branch of fresh green holly in its hand, and, in singular contradiction of that wintry emblem, had its dress trimmed with summer flowers. But the strangest thing about it was that from the crown of its head there sprang a bright clear jet of light, by which all this was visible, and which was doubtless the occasion of its using, in its duller moments, a great extinguisher for a cap, which it now held under its arm. Even this, though, when Scrooge looked at it with increasing steadiness, was not its strangest quality, for, as it felt sparked and glittered, now in one part and now in another, and what was light one instant at another time was dark, so the figure itself fluctuated in, in its distinctness, being now a thing with one arm, now with one leg, now with twenty legs, now a pair of legs, without a head, now a head without a body, at which dissolving parts no outline would be visible in. Even this, though, when Scrooge looked at it with increasing steadiness, was not as strange as quality. For, as its bell sparkled and glittered, I'm sorry, would be visible in the you shut know, back on me, would be visible in the dense gloom wherein they melted away. And in the very wonder of this, it would be itself again distinct and clear as ever. Are you the spirit, sir, whose coming was foretold to me? asked Scrooge. I am. The voice was soft and gentle, singularly low, as if instead of being so close behind him, it were at a distance. "'Who and what are you?' Scrooge demanded. "'I am the ghost of Christmas past.' "'Long past?' inquired Scrooge. "'No, your past.' "'Perhaps Scrooge could not have told anybody why. "'If anyone could have asked him, "'but he had a special desire to see the spirit in his cap "'and begged him to be covered.' "'What?' exclaimed the ghost. "'What would you so soon put out with worldly hands?' "'The line I give?' "'Is it not enough that you are one of those whose passions made this cap "'and forced me through the whole transit of years to wear it low upon my brow?' "'Scrooge reverently disclaimed all intention to offend, "'or any knowledge of having willfully bonneted the spirit at any period of his life. "'He then made bold to inquire what business brought him here. "'Your welfare,' said the ghost. "'Scrooge expressed himself much obliged, but could not help thinking,' That a night of unbroken rest would have been more con- conducive to that end the spirit must have heard him thinking for it immediately said your reclamation then take heed it put out its strong hand as if, as it spoke and clasped him gently by the arm rise and walk with me it would have been in vain for Scrooge to plead that the weather and the hour were not adapted to pedestrian purposes that bed was warm and the thermometer a long way below freezing, that he was clad but lightly in his slippers, dressing gown, and nightcap, and that he had a cold upon him at the time. The grasp, though, gentle, as a woman's hand, was not to be resisted. He rose, but finding that the spirit made made towards the window, clasped its robe in supplication. I am immortal, Scrooge Scrooge remonstrated, and liable to fall. "'Bear but a touch of my hand there,' said the spirit, laying it upon his heart, "'and you shall be upheld in more than this.' "'As the words were spoken, they passed through the wall "'and stood upon an open country road with fields on either hand. "'The city had entirely vanished. "'Not a vestige of it was to be seen. "'The darkness in the midst had vanished with it, "'for for it was a clear, cold, wintry day with snow upon the ground. "'Good heavens!' said Scrooge clasping his hand together as he looked about about him. Let me move this up here. Okay. I was bred in this place. I was a boy here. The spirit gazed upon him mildly. Its gentle touch, though it had been light and instantaneous, appeared still present to the old man's sense of feeling. He was conscious of a thousand odors floating in the air, each one connected with a thousand thoughts and hopes and joys and cares long, long forgotten. Your lip is trembling, said the ghost. And what is that upon your cheek? Scrooge muttered with with an unusual catching in his voice that it was a pimple and begged the ghost to lead him where he would. You recollect the way, inquired the spirit. Remember it, cried Scrooge. I could walk it blindfolded. Strange to have forgotten it for so many years, observed the ghost. Let us go on. They walked along the road, Scrooge recognizing every gate and post and tree, until a little market town appeared in the distance, with its bridge, its church, and winding river. Some shaggy ponies now were seen trotting towards them, with boys upon their backs, who called to other boys in country gigs and carts driven by farmers. All these boys were in great spirits and shouted to each other, until the broad fields were so full of merry music that the crisp air laughed to hear it. "'These are but shadows of the things that have been,' said the ghost. "'They have no conscience of us.' "'The Jokun travelers came on, and as they came, Scrooge knew and named them everyone. "'Why was he rejoiced beyond old bouts to see them? "'Why did his cold eye glisten and his heart leap up as they were as they went past? "'Why was he filled with gladness when, when he heard them give each other Merry Christmas "'as they parted at crossroads and byways?' What was Merry Christmas to Scrooge? Out upon Merry Christmas, what good had it ever done to him? The school is not quite deserted, said the ghost. A solitary child neglected by his friends is left there still. Scrooge said he knew it and he sobbed. They left the high road by a well-remembered lane and soon approached a mansion of dull red brick with a little weathercock surmounted copula on the top of the roof. And a bell hanging in it. It was a large house, but one of broken fortunes, for the spacious offices were little used. Their walls were damp and mossy, their windows broken, and their gates decayed. Fowls clucked and strutted in the stables, and the coach houses and sheds were overrun with grass. Nor was it more retentive of its ancient state within, for entering The dreary hall and glancing through the open doors of many rooms they found them poorly furnished cold and vast there was an earthly savior in the air a chilly barrenness in the place which associated itself somehow with too much getting up by candlelight and not too much to eat they went the ghost and scrooge across the hall to a door at the back of the house it opened before them and disclosed a long bare melancholy room Made bareer still by lines of plain deal forms and desks. At one of these, a lonely boy was reading near a feeble fire, and Scrooge sat down upon a form, and wept to see his poor forgotten self as he had used to be. Not a Latin echo in the house, not a squeak and scuffle from the mice behind the paneling, not a drip from the half-thawed water spout in the dull yard behind, not a sigh among the leafless boughs of one. D- despondent poplar not the idle swinging of an empty storehouse door no not a clicking in the fire but fell upon the heart of scrooge with softening influence and gave a freer passage to his tears the spirit touched him on the arm and pointed to his younger self intent upon his reading suddenly a man in foreign garments wonderfully real and distinct to look at stood outside the window with an axe stuck in his belt and, lead, and leading by the bridle an ass laden with wood. Why, it's Ali Baba! Scrooge exclaimed in ecstasy. It's dear old honest Ali Baba. Yes, yes, I know. One Christmas time, when yonder solitary child was left here all alone, he did come for the first time, just like that. Poor boy. And Valentine, said Scrooge. And his wild brother Orson. There they go. And what's his name? who was put down in his drawers asleep at the gate of Damascus, don't you see him? And the Sultan's groom turned upside down by the genie. There he is upon his head. Serve him right, I'm glad of it. What business had he to be married to the princess? To hear Scrooge expending all the earnestness of his nature on such subjects in a most extraordinary voice between laughing and crying, and to see his heightened and excited voice would have been a surprise to his business friends in the city, indeed. In the city, indeed. There is the parrot," cried Scrooge. Green body and yellow tail, with a thing like a lettuce growing out of the top of its head. There he is, poor Robin Crusoe," he called him, when he came home again after sailing round the island. Poor Robin Crusoe, where have you been, Robin Crusoe? The man thought he was dreaming, but he wasn't. It was the parrot. You know, there goes Friday, running for his entire life to the little creek. Halloa, hoop! Hallo! Then, with a with a rapidity of transition very foreign to his usual character, he said, in pity for his former self, "Poor boy!" and cried again, "I wish, Scrooge!" Scrooge muttered, "Ah, I wish," Scrooge muttered, putting his hand in his pocket and looking about him. "'after drawing his eyes with his cuff, but it's too late now. "'What is the matter?' asked the spirit. "'Nothing,' said Scrooge. "'Nothing. There was a boy singing a Christmas carol at my door last night. "'I should like to have given him something, that's all.' "'The ghost smiled thoughtfully and waved its hand, "'saying as it did so, "'Let us see another Christmas.' "'Scrooge's former self grew larger at the words.' and the room became a little darker and more dirty. The panels shrunk, the windows cracked, fragments of plaster fell out of the ceiling, and the naked lathes were, were shown instead. But how, how all this was brought about, Scrooge knew no more than you do. He only knew that it was quite correct, that everything had happened so, that the, that there he was, alone again, when all, other boys had, when all the other boys had gone home for the jolly holidays. He was not reading now, but walking up and down despairingly. Scrooge looked at the ghost and, with a mournful shaking of his head, glanced anxiously towards the door. It opened and a little girl, much younger than the boy, came darting in and, and putting her arms about his neck and often kissing him, addressed him as her dear, dear brother. I have come to bring you home to your brother," said the girl, clapping her tiny hands and bending down to laugh to bring you home, 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 little fan returned the boy. Yes, said the child, brimful of glee, home for good and all, home for ever and ever. Father is so much kinder than he used to be, that home's like heaven, he spoke so gently to me one dear night when when I was going to bed that I was not afraid to ask him once more if you might come home and he said yes yes you should and sent me in a coach to bring you and you're to be a man said the child opening her eyes and you're never to come back here but first we're to be together all the Christmas long and have the merriest time in all the world you're quite a woman little fan exclaimed the boy she clapped her hands and laughed and tried to touch his head but, being too little, laughed again, and stood on tiptoe to embrace him. Then she began to drag him in her, childish, in her childish eagerness towards the door, and he, nothing little to go, accompanied her. A terrible voice in the hall cried, Bring down Master Scrooge's box, there! And in the hall appeared the schoolmaster himself, who glared on Master Scrooge with a ferocious condescension, and threw him into a dreadful state of mind by shaking hands with him he then conveyed him and his sister into the veriest old well of a shivering at best parlor that ever was seen where the maps upon the wall and the celestial and terrestrial globes in the windows were waxy with cold here he produced a decanter of cur- a curiously light wine and a block of curiously heavy cake and administered installments of those dainties to the young people at the same time sending out a meager servant to offer a glass of something to the postboy, who answered that he thanked the gentleman, but if it was the same tap as he had tasted before, he had rather not. Master Scrooge's trunk being, by this time, tied on the roof of the chase, the children bade the schoolmaster goodbye, right willingly, and, getting into it, drove gaily down the garden sweep. The quick wheels dashing the hoar frost and snow from off the dark leaves of the evergreens like spray. Always a delicate creature, whom a breath might have withered. Said the ghost. But she had a large heart. So she had cried, Scrooge. You're right. I will not get. Ga- I will not gainsay it, Spirit. God forbid. She died a woman," said the ghost, "and had, as I think, children. One child," Scrooge returned. "True," said the ghost, "your nephew." Scrooge seemed uneasy in his mind and answered briefly, "Yes." Although they had, although they had, but that moment left the school behind them, they were now in the busy thoroughfares of a city, where shadowy passengers passed and repassed, where shadowy carts and coaches battled for the way and all the strife and tumult of a real city were. It was made plain enough by the dressing of the shops that here too it was Christmas time again. But it was evening, and the streets were lighted up. The ghost stopped at a certain warehouse door and asked Scrooge if he knew it. Know it, said Scrooge. Was I apprenticed here? They went in. At sight of an old gentleman in a Welsh wig sitting behind such a high desk, that if he had been two inches taller, he might have knocked his head against the ceiling. Scrooge cried in great excitement. Why, it's old Fezziwig. Bless his heart, it's Fezziwig alive again. Old Fezziwig laid down his pen and looked up at the clock, which pointed to the hour of seven. He rubbed his hands, adjusted his capacious waistcoat, laughed all over himself from from his shoes to his organ of, of benevolence. And called out in a comfortable, oily, rich, fat, jo- 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 joyful voice, "Yo ho there, Ebenezer Dick!" Scrooge's former self, now grown a young man, came briskly in, accompanied by his fellow apprentice. "Dick Wilkins, to be sure," said Scrooge to the ghost. "Bless me, yes, there he is. He was very much attached to me, was Dick. Poor Dick, dear, dear." Yo ho, my boy, said Fezziwig. No more work tonight. Christmas Eve, Dick. Christmas, Ebenezer. Let's have the shutters up, cried old Fezziwig with a sharp clap of his hands before a man can say, Jack Robinson. You wouldn't believe how those fellows went at it. They charged into the street with the shutters. One, two, three, had em up in their places four, five, six, Bart him and pinned him at seven, eight, nine, and came back before you could have got to 12 panting panty-like racehorses. Hilly-hoo, cried the old fizzy wig, skipping down from the high desk with wonderful agility. Clear away, my lads, and let's have lots of room here. Hilly-hoo, dick, cheer up, as an easier. Clear away, there was nothing that they wouldn't have cleared away or couldn't have cleared away with old fizzy wig looking on. It was done in a minute. Every movable was packed off as if it were dismissed from public life for, uh, forevermore. The floor was swept and watered, the lamps were trimmed, fuel was heaped upon the fire, and the warehouse was as snug and warm and dry and bright a ballroom as you ever would desire to see upon a winter's night. In came a fiddler with a music book and went up to the lofty desk and made an orchestra of it and turned like 50, 50 stomach aches. In came Mrs. Fezziwig, one vast substantial smile. In came the three Miss Fezziwigs, beaming and lovable. In came the six young followers whose hearts they broke. In came all the young men and women employed in the business. In came the housemaid with her cousin, the baker. In came the cook with her brother's particular friend, the milkman. In came the boy from over the way, who was suspected of not having bored enough from his master trying to hide himself behind the girl from next door, but but one, who was proved to have had her ears pulled by her mistress. In they all came, one after another, some shyly, some boldly, some gracefully, some awkwardly, some pushing, some pulling, and all they came, anyhow and everyhow. Away they all went, twenty couple at once, hands half round the back again, the other way down the middle and up again, round and round in various stages of affectionate grouping, old top couple always turning up in the wrong place, new top couple starting off again as soon as they got there, old top, old top couples at last, and not a bottom one to help them. When this result was brought about, old Fezziwig, clapping his hands to stop the dance cried out, well done, and the fiddler plunged his hot face into a pot of porter, especially provided for that purpose. But scorning rest upon his reappearance, he instantly began again, though there was no dances yet, as if the other fiddler had been carried home, exhausted, on a shutter, and he were, he were a brand new man, resolved to beat him out of sight or perish. Then old Fezziwig stood out to dance with Mrs. Fezziwig. There were more dances. And there were forfeits, and more dances, and there was cake, and there was negus, and there was a great piece of cold roast, and there was a great piece of cold boiled, and there were mince pies, and plenty of beer. But the great effect of the evening came after the roast and boiled, when the fiddler, an artful dog, mind, well, an artful dog, mine, the sort of man who knew his business better than you or I could could ha- could have told it him, struck up Sir Roger de Coverley. Then old Fezziwig stood out to dance with Mrs. Fezziwig. Top couple, too. Was a good stiff piece of work cut out for them. Three or four and twenty pair of partners. People who were not to be trifled with. People who would, be, people who would dance and had no notion of walking. But if they had been twice as many, ah, four times, old Fezziwig would have done a match for them. And so would Mrs. Fezziwig. As to her... She was worthy to be his partner in every sense of the term. If that's not high praise, tell me higher and I'll use it. A positive light appeared to issue from Fezziwig's calves. They shone in every part of the dance like moons. You couldn't have predicted at any given time, what would become of them next. And when old Fezziwig and Mrs. Fezziwig gone through the dance, advance and retire, both hands to your partner, bow and curtsy, corkscrew, thread, okay, thread the needle and back again, to your place, Fezziwig cut, cut so deftly that he appeared to wink with his legs and came upon his feet again without a stagger. When the clock struck eleven, this domestic ball broke up. Mr. and Mrs. Fezziwig took their stations, one on either side of the door, and shaking hands with every person individually, as he or she went out, wished him or her a Merry Christmas. When everybody had retired but the two but the two prentices, they did the same to them, And thus the cheerful voices died away, and the lads were left to their beds, which were under a counter in the back shop. During the whole of this time, Scrooge acted like a man out of his wits. His heart and soul were in the scene and with his former self. He corroborated everything, remembered everything, enjoyed everything, and underwent the strangest agitation. It was not until now when the bright faces of his former self and Dick returned from them, that he remembered the ghost and became conscious that it was looking full upon him while the light upon his head burnt very clear a small matter said the ghost to make these silly folks so full of gratitude small echoed scrooge the spirit sighed signed to him to listen to the two apprentices who were then pouring out their hearts in praise of fezziwig and when he had done so said why is it not He has spent but a few pounds of your mortal money, three or four, perhaps. Is that so much that he deserves this praise? It isn't that, said Scrooge, heated by the remark, and speaking unconsciously like his former, not his latter self. It isn't that, Spirit. He has the power to render us happy or unhappy, to make our service light or burdensome, a pleasure or toil. Say that his power lies in, in his words and looks and thinks so slight and insignificant that it is impossible to add and count them up. What, then? The happiness he gives is quite as great as if it cost us a fortune." He felt the spirits glance and stopped. "'What is the matter?' asked the ghost. "'Nothing particular,' said Scrooge. "'Something, I think,' the ghost insisted. "'No,' said Scrooge, no. "'I should like to be able to say a word or two to my clerk just now, that's all.' His former self turned down the lamps as he gave an utterance to the wish, and Scrooge, Scrooge and the ghost again stood side by side in the open air. My time grows short, observed the spirit, quick. This was not addressed to Scrooge, or to anyone whom he could see, but it produced an immediate effect, for again Scrooge saw himself. He was older now, a man in the prime of his life. His face had not the harsh and rigid lines and love later years but it had begun to wear the size of care and avarice. There was an eager, greedy, restless motion in his eye, which, slow, which showed the passion that had taken root and where the shadow of the growing tree would fall. He was not alone, but sat by the side of a fair young girl in a mourning dress and whose eyes there were tears, which, spark, which sparkled in the light that shone out of the ghost of Christmas past. It matters little she said softly to you very little another idol has displaced me if it can cheer and comfort you in time to come as i would have tried to do i have no just cause to grieve what idol has displaced you he rejoined a golden one this is even this is the even-handed dealing of the world he said there is nothing on which it it is so hard as poverty and there is nothing It professes to condemn with such severity as the pursuit of wealth. You fear the world too much, she answered gently. All your other hopes have merged into the hope of being beyond the chance of a sordid reproach. I have seen your nobler aspirations fall off one by one until the master passion gain engrosses you. Have I not? What then, he retorted. Even if I have grown so much wiser, what then? I am not changed towards you. She shook her head. Am I? Our contact is an old one. It was made when we were both poor. Our, our, so our contract is an old one. It was made when we were both poor. And content to be so until, in good season, we could improve our worldly fortune by our patient industry. You are changed. When it was made, you were another man. I was a boy, he said impatiently. Your own feeling tells you that you were not what you are, she returned. I am. I am that which promised happiness when we were one and heart is fraught with misery now that we are two. How often and how keenly I have thought of this, I will not say. It is enough that I have thought of it and can release you. Have I ever sought release? In words? No, never. In what then? In a changed nature, in an altered spirit, in another atmosphere of life, another hope as its great end, in everything that made my love of any worth or value in your sight. If this had never been between us, said the girl, looking mildly, but with steadiness upon him, tell me. Would you seek me out and try to win me now? Ah, uh, no. He seemed to yield to the justice of, of this supposition in spite of himself, but he said with well, a struggle, "You think not. I would gladly think otherwise if I could, she answered. "Heaven knows, when I have learned a truth like this, I know how strong and irresistible it must be. But if you are free today, tomorrow, yesterday, can even I believe that you would choose a dowerless girl. You who in your very confidence with her weight with her, weigh everything by gain, or choosing her, if for the moment you were false enough to your one guiding principle to do so. Do I not know that your do I not know that, that, that your repentance and regret would surely follow? I do, and I release you with a full heart for the love of him you once were. She left him, and they parted. He was about to speak, but with her head turned from him, she resumed. You may, the memory of what is hap- makes me hope you will have pain in this. A very, very brief time, and you will dismiss the recollection of it gladly as an unprofitable dream from which it happened. May you be happy in the life you have chosen. She left him, and they parted. ''Spirit,'' said Scrooge, ''show me no more. Conduct me home. Why why do you delight to torture me?'' ''One shadow more,'' exclaimed the ghost. ''No more,'' cried Scrooge, ''no more. I don't wish to see it. Show me no more.'' But the relentless ghost pinioned him in both his arms, and forced him to observe what happened next. They were in another scene and place, a room, not very large or handsome, but full of comfort. Near to the winter fire there sat a beautiful young girl, so like the last that Scrooge had believed it was the same, until he saw her. Now a comely matron, sitting opposite her daughter. The noise in this room was perfectly tumultuous, for there were more children there than Scrooge in his agitated state of mind could count. And unlike the celebrated herd in the poem, there were not forty children, conducting themselves like one. But every child was conducting itself like forty. The consequences were uproarious beyond belief, but no one seemed to care on the the contrary. The mother and daughter laughed heartily and enjoyed it very much, and the latter, soon soon beginning to mingle in the sports, got pillaged by the young brigands most ruthlessly. What would I not have given to be one of them? Though I never could have been so rude. No, no. I wouldn't for the wealth of all the world have crushed that braided hair and torn it down. And for the precious little shoe, I wouldn't have plucked it off. God bless my soul, to save my life. As to measuring her waist and sport, as they did, bold young brood, I couldn't have done it. I should have expected my arm to have grown round it for a punishment, and never came straight again. And yet I should have dearly liked I own, to have touched her lips, to have questioned her, that she might have opened them, to have looked upon the lashes of her downcast eyes, and never raised a blush, to have let loose waves of hair, an inch of which would be a keepsake beyond price. In short, I would have liked, I do confess, to have had the lightest license of a child, and yet to have been man enough to know its value. but now a knocking at the door was heard, and such a rush immediately ensued, that she, with laughing face and plundered dress, was borne towards it to the center of a flushed and boisterous group, just in time to greet the father, who came home, attended by a man laden with Christmas toys and presents. Then the shouting and the struggling, and the onslaught that was made on the, the defenseless porter, the scaling him with the chairs for ladders, to dive into his pockets, to spoil him of brown paper parcels, hold on tight by his cravat, hug him round his neck, pummel his back, and kick his legs in, impre- in, in, in impressionable, uh, sorry, irrepressible affection. The shouts of wonder and delight with which he which wished the development of every package was received, the terrible announcement that the baby had been taken in the act of putting a doll's frying pan. Into, its mouth, into his mouth, and was more than suspected of having swallowed a fictitious turkey, glued on a wooden platter. The immense relief of finding this a false alarm, the joy and gratitude and ecstasy, they are, they are all indescribably alike. It is enough that, by degree, the children and their emotions got out of the parlor and, by one stare at a time, up to the top of the house where they went to bed and so subsided. And now Scrooge looked on more attentively than ever, when the master of the house, having his daughter leaning fondly on him, sat down with her and her mother at his own fireside. And when he thought that such another creature, quite as graceful and as full of promise, might have called him father and been a springtime in the haggard winter of his life, his sight grew very dim indeed. Bell, said the husband, turning to his wife with a smile. I saw an old friend of yours this afternoon. Who was that? Guess. How can I, Tut? Don't I know? She added in the same breath, laughing as he laughed. Mr. Scrooge. Mr. Scrooge, it was. I passed. Mr. Scrooge, it was. I passed his office window and as it was not shut up and he had a candle inside. I could scarcely see. I could scarcely help seeing him. His partner relies upon the point of death. I hear, and there he sat alone, quite alone in the world, I do believe. Spirit, said Scrooge in a broken voice, remove me from this place. I told you these were shadows of the things that have have been, said the ghost, "that that they are what they are. Do not blame me. Remove me, Scrooge exclaimed. I cannot bear it. He turned upon the ghost, and seeing that it looked upon him with a face, in which in some strange way, there were fragments of all the faces it had shown him rustled with it. Leave me, take me back, haunt me no longer. In the struggle, if that can be called a struggle in which the ghost, with no visible resistance on its own part, was undisturbed by any effort of its adversary, Scrooge observed that his light was burning high and bright, and dimly connecting that with its influence over him, he seized the extinguisher cap, and by a sudden action, pressed it down upon his head. The spirit dropped beneath it, so that the extinguisher covered its whole form. But though Scrooge pressed it, but though Scrooge pressed it down with all his force, he could not hide the light, which streamed from a which uh, streamed from under it, in an unbroken flood, upon the ground. He was conscious of being exhausted and overcome by an irresistible drowsiness, and further of being in his own bedroom. He gave the calf a parting squeeze and which his hand relaxed and had barely time to reel to bed before he sank into a heavy sleep. Stave three. The second of the three spirits. Awakening in the middle of of a prodigiously tough snore and sitting up in bed to get his thoughts together, Scrooge had no occasion to be told that the bell was again upon the stroke of one. He felt that he was restored to consciousness in the nick of time for the especial purpose of holding a conference with the second messengers dispatched to him through Jacob Marley's intervention. But finding that he turned uncomfortably cold when he began to wonder which of the curtains this new spectre would draw back, he put them, everyone, aside with his own hands and lying down again established a sharp lookout all around the bed, for he wished to challenge the spirit on the moment of its appearance and did not wish to be taken by surprise and made nervous. Gentlemen of the free and easy sort, who plume themselves on being acquainted with a move or two and being unusually equal to the time of day, express the wide range of their capacity for adventure by observing that they are good for anything, from pitch and toss to manslaughter between which opposite extremes no doubt there lies a tolerably wide and comprehensive range of subjects. Without venturing for Scrooge quite as hardly as this, I don't mind calling on you to believe that he was ready for a good broad field of strange appearances, and that nothing between a baby and a rhinoceros would have astonished him very much. Now, being prepared for almost anything, he was not by any means prepared for nothing. And consequently, when the bell struck one, and no shape appeared, he was taken with a violent fit of trembling. Five minutes, ten minutes, quarter of an hour went by, yet nothing came. All this time he lay upon his bed the very core and center of a blaze of ruddy light, which streamed upon it when the clock proclaimed the hour, and which, being only light, was more alarming than a dozen ghosts, as he was powerless to make out what it meant, or would be at and was sometimes apprehensive that he might be at the very moment an interesting case of spontaneous combustion without having the, con- the consolation of knowing it. At last, however, he began to think, as you or I would have thought at first, for it is always the person not in the predicament who knows what ought to have been done in, in it, and would unquestionably have done, have done it too. At last, I say, he began to think that the source and secret of this ghostly light might be in the adjoining room. From whence, on further tracing it, it seemed to shine. This idea taking full position of his mind, he got up softly and shuffled in his slippers to the door. The moment Scrooge's hand was on the lock, a strange voice called him by his name and bade him to enter. He obeyed. It was his own room. There was no doubt about that but it had undergone a surprising transformation. The walls and ceiling were so hung with living green that it looked like a perfect grove, from every part of which bright gleaming berries glistened. The crisp leaves of holly, mistletoe, and ivy reflected back the light, as if so many little mirrors had been scattered there, and such a mighty blaze went roaring up the chimney as that dull petrification of a hearth had never known in Scrooge's time, or Marley's, or for many and many a winter season gone. He heaped up on the floor—I'm sorry—heaped up on the floor to form a kind of throne, where turkeys, geese, game, poultry, brawn, great joints of meat, sucking pig, great great joints of meat, sucking pigs, long wreaths of sausages, mince pies, plum puddings, barrels of oysters, red-hot chestnuts, cherry-cheeked apples. Juicy oranges, luscious pears, immense twelfth cakes, and seething bowls of punch that made the chamber dim with their delicious steam. In easy state upon this couch, there sat a jolly giant, glorious to see, who bore a glory who bore a glowing torch and in shape not unlike Plenty's horn, and held it up, high up, to shed its light on Scrooge as he came peeping around the door. Come in, explained the ghost. Come in, and know me better, man. Scrooge entered timidly and hung his head before the spirit. He was, not do- he, was, he was not the dogged Scrooge he has been, and though the spirit's eyes were clear and kind, he did not like to meet him. them. I am the ghost Christmas present, said the spirit. Look upon me. Scrooge revertly did so. It was, cl- was closed in one simple deep green robe or mantle, bordered with white fur. This garment hung so loosely on the figure that its capacious breast was bare, as if disdaining to, the, to be warded or concealed by any art, by, 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 by any artifice. Its feet, observable beneath the apple folds, the garment, were also bare, and on its head it wore no other covering than a holly wreath, set here and there with shining icicles. Its dark brown curls were long and free, free as its Free, excuse me, free Free as its genial face, its sparkling eye, its opening hand, its cheery voice, its unconstrained demeanor, and its joyful air. Girded round its middle was an antique scabbard, but no sword was in it, and the ancient sheath was eaten up with rust. You have never seen the like of me before, exclaimed the spirit. Never, Scrooge made answer. Have never walked forth With the younger members of my family, meaning, for I am very young, my elder brothers, born in these later years, pursued the phantom. I don't think I have, said Scrooge. I'm I'm afraid I am not. Have you had many brothers, Spirit? More than 1800, said the ghost. A tremendous family to provide for, muttered Scrooge. The ghost of Christmas Christmas present rose. Spirit, said Scrooge, submissively. Conduct me where you will. I went forth last night on compulsion, and I learned a lesson which is working now. Tonight, if you have, if you aught, tonight, if you have aught to teach me, let me profit by it. Touch my robe. Touch my robe. Scrooge did, and he was told and held it fast. Holly, mistletoe, red berries, ivy, tur- ivy turkeys, geese game, poultry, brawn, meat, pigs, sausage, oysters, pies, puddings, fruit, and punch, all vanished instantly. So did the room. So did the room, the fire, the ruddy glow, the hour of night, and they stood in the city streets on Christmas morning, where, for the weather was severe, the people had made a rough but brisk and not unpleasant kind of music, and scraping the snow from the pavement in front of their dwellings and from the tops of their houses. Whence it, was mad, whence it was mad delight to the boys to see it to see it plumping down into the road below and, and splitting into an artificial into artificial little snowstorms. The house fronts looked black enough and the windows blacker, contrasting with the smooth white sheet of snow upon the roofs, and with the dirtier snow upon the ground, which last which at last upon, had been ploughed up in deep furrows by the heavy wheels of carts and wagons. Furrows that crossed and recrossed each other hundreds of times, where the great streets branched off and made intricate channels hard to trace in the thick yellow mud and icy water. The sky was gloomy, and the shortest streets were choked up with with a dingy mist, half thawed, half frozen, whose heavier particles descended in a shower of sooty atoms, as if all the chimneys in Great Britain had, by one consent caught fire, and were blazing away to their dear heart's content. There was nothing very cheerful in the climate or the town, and yet was there an empty cheerfulness abroad that the clearest summer air and brightest summer sun might have endeavored to diffuse in vain. For the people who were shoveling away on the housetops were joyful, were jovial, I'm sorry, and full of glee. Calling out to one another from, from the parapets, and now and then exchanging the, the, the facetious snowball, better nature missile far than many were just jest, laughing heartily as, as it went right, and not less heartily if it went wrong. The poulterers' shops were still half open, and the fruitiers were radiant in their glory. There were great round pot belly baskets of chestnuts shaped like waistcoats of jolly old gentlemen, lolling at the doors and tumbling out into the street in their epileptic a- a- opulence. There were ruddy brown-faced, broad-girthed Spanish onions shining in the fatness of their growth, like Spanish friars, and winking from their shelves in wanton slyness as the girls, at the girls as they went by and glanced demurely at, at the hung up mistletoe. There were pears and apples clustered high in blooming pyramids. There were bundles of grapes made in the shopkeeper's benevolence to dangle from conspicuous hooks that people's mouths might water gratis as they passed. There were piles of filberts, mossy and brown, recalling in their fragrance ancient walks among the woods and pleasant shovelings ankle-deep through through withered leaves. There were nor- Norfolk biffins, squab and swarthy, setting off the yellow of the oranges and lemons, and in the great compactness of their juicy persons, urgently entreating and beseeching to be carried home in paper bags and eaten after dinner. The very gold and silver fish set forth among these choice fruits in a bowl, though members of a dull and stagnant blooded race, appeared to know that there was something going on. And to a fish, when gasping round and round their little world, is slow and passionless excitement. The grocers, oh the grocers, nearly closed, with perhaps two shutters down or one. But through those gaps such glimpses, it was not alone that the scales descending on the counter made a merry sound, or that the twine and roller parted company so briskly, or that the canisters were rattled up and down like juggling tricks or even that the blended scents of tea and coffee were so grateful to the nose, or even that the raisins were so plentiful and rare, the almonds so extremely white, the sticks of cinnamon so long and straight, the other spices so delicious, the candied fruit so caked and spotted with molten sugar as to make the coldest lookers-on feel faint and subsequently bilious. Nor was it that the figs were moist and pulpy, or that the French plums blushed in modest tartness from their highly decorated boxes, or that everything was good to eat in its Christmas dress, but the customers were all so hurried and so eager in the hopeful promise of the day that they tumbled up against each other at the door, crashing their wicker baskets wildly, and left their purchases upon the counter and came running back to fetch them, and committed hundreds of the like mistakes in the best humor possible, while the grocer and his people were so frank and fresh, that the polished hearts with which they fastened their aprons behind might have been their own, worn out for general inspection and for Christmas Christmas dolls to peck at if they chose. But soon the steeples called good people all to church, and the chapel, and and away they came flocking through the streets in their best clothes and with their gayest faces. And at the same time, there emerged from scores of by-streets, lanes, and nameless turnings, innumerable people carrying their dinners to the baker's shops. The sight of these poor revelers appeared to interest the spirit very much, for he stood with Scrooge beside him in a baker's doorway and, taking off the covers as their bearers passed, sprinkled incense on their dinners from his torch and it was a very uncommon kind of torch. For once or twice, when the, when there were angry words between some, some dinner carriers who had jostled each other, he shed a few drops of water on them from it, and their good humor was restored directly. For, they said, it was a shame to quarrel upon Christmas Day. And so it was. God love it, so it was. In time, the bell ceased, and the bakers were shut up, And yet there was a genial shadowing forth of all these dinners and the progress of their cooking in the thawed blotch of wet above each baker's oven, where the pavement smoked as if its stones were cooking too. Is there a peculiar flavor in what you sprinkle from your torch, asked Scrooge? There is, my own. Would it apply to any kind of dinner on this day, asked Scrooge? To any kindly given, to a poor one most. Why do a poor one most, asked Scrooge, because it needs it most. Spirit, said Scrooge, after a moment's thought, I wonder you, of all the beings in the many worlds about us, should desire to cramp these people's opportunities of innocent enjoyment. I cried the spirit, you would deprive them of their means of dying every seventh day, often the only day on which they could be said to dine at all, said Scrooge, wouldn't you? I, cried the spirit. You seek to close these places on the seventh day, said Scrooge, and it comes to the same thing. I seek, exclaimed the spirit. Forgive me if I am wrong. It has been done in your name, or at least in that of your family, said Scrooge. There are some upon this earth of yours, returned the spirit, who lay claim to know us, and who do their deeds of passion, pride, ill will, hatred, envy, bigotry, and selfishness, in our name, who are as strange to us and all of our kith and kin as if they had never lived, remember that, and charge their doings on themselves, not us. Scrooge promised that he would, and they went on, invisible as they had been before, into the suburbs of the town. It was a remarkable quality of the ghost, which Scrooge had observed at the Baker's, that notwithstanding his gigantic size, he could accommodate himself to any place with ease, and that he stood beneath a low roof quite as gracefully and like a, su- a supernatural creature as it was possible he could have done in any lofty hall. And perhaps it was the pleasure the good spirit had, had in showing off his power of his, or else it was his own kind, generous, hearty nature, and his, and his sympathy with all poor men that led him straight to Scrooge's clerks, for there he went and took Scrooge with him. Holding to his robe and on the threshold of, of the door, the spirit smiled and stepped to the blessed Bob Cratchit's dwelling. and stopped I'm sorry, smiled and stopped to bless Bob Cratchit's dwelling with the sprinkling of his torch. Think of that. Bob had been 15, Bob a week himself. He pocketed on. He pocketed on Saturdays, but fifteen copies of his Christian name, and yet the ghost Christmas present blessed his, his flower-roomed house. Then up rose Missus Cratchit, Cratchit's wife, dressed out but poorly, in a twice-turned gown, but brave in ribbons which which are cheap, and make a godly show, and make a goodly show, and make a goodly show for six. I'm sorry, which are cheap, and make a goodly show for sixpence. And she laid the cloth, assisted by Belinda Cratchit, second of her daughters, also brave in ribbons, while Master Peter Cratchit had plunged a fork into the saucepan of potatoes and getting the corners of his monstrous shirt collar, Bob's private property conferred upon his son, and heir in honor of the day, into his mouth, rejoiced to find himself so gallantly attired, and yearned to show his linen in the fashionable parks. And now, two similar Cratchits, a boy and a girl, came tearing and screaming that outside, bakers, outside the bakers they had smelt the goose and known it for their own. And basking in luxurious thoughts of sage and onion, these young Cratchits danced about the table and exalted master Peter Cratchit to the skies. While he, not proud, although his collars nearly choked him, blew the fire until the slow potatoes Bubbling up, knocked loudly at the saucepan lid, to be let out and peeled. What has ever got your precious father then? said Mrs. Cratchit. And your brother Tiny Tim. And Martha weren't as late as Christmas Day by half an hour. Here's Martha, mother, said a girl, appearing as she spoke. Here's Martha, mother, cried the two young Cratchits. Hurrah. They're such a goose, Martha they're such a goose, Martha. Why, bless your heart alive, my dear. How late you are, said Mrs. Cratchit, kissing her a dozen times and taking off her shawl with a bonnet for her with officious glee. Officious glee, not vicious. Sorry. We had a deal of work to finish up last night, replied the girl, and had to clear away this morning, Mother. Said. mother. Well, never mind, so long as you are come, said Mrs. Cratchit. "'Sit ye down before the fire, my dear, and have a warm Lord bless ye.' "'No, no, there's Father coming,' cried the two young crotchets, "'who were everywhere at once. "'Hide, Martha, hide!' "'So Martha hid herself, and in came little Bob, the father, "'with at least three feet of comforter, exclusive of, "'the fringe, hanging down before him, "'and his threadbare clothes darned up and brushed to look seasonable, "'and tiny Tim upon his shoulder.' Alas for Tiny Tim, he bore a little crutch, and had his limbs supported by an iron frame. Why, where's our Martha? cried Bob Cratchit, looking round. Not coming, said Mrs. Cratchit. Not coming, said Bob, with a sudden t- declension in, in his high spirits. For he had, been Tim, he had been Tim's blood horse all the way from church, and had come home rampant. Not coming upon Christmas Day. Martha didn't like to see him disappointed, if it were only a joke, if it were only a joke. So she came out prematurely from behind the closet door and ran into his arms while the two young Cratchits hustled Tiny Tim and bore him off into the wash house that he might hear the the pudding singing in the the copper. And how did little Tim behave, asked Mrs. Cratchit, when when she had rallied Bob and. Bob on, uh, no, no, excuse me a second, when she rallied, rallied Bob, uh, 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 God, I can't get this out, asked Mrs. Cratchit, and Bob had hugged his daughter to his heart's content. As good as gold, said Bob, and better. Somehow he gets thoughtful, sitting by himself so much, and thinks the strangest things we ever heard. He told me, coming home, that he hoped people saw him in the church, because he was a cripple, and it might be pleasant to them to remember upon Christmas who made the lamb beggars walk and blind men see. Bob's voice was was tremulous when he told him this and trembled more when he said that Tiny Tim was growing strong and hardy. His active little crutch was heard upon the floor and back came Tiny Tim before another word was spoken, escorted by his brother and sister to his stool beside the fire. And while Bob turning up his cuffs, as if poor fellow, they were capable of being made more shabby compounded some hot mixture in a jug with gin and lemons, and stirred it round and round, and put it on the hob to simmer. Master Peter and the two ambiguous young Cratchits went to fetch the goose, with which they soon returned in high possession. Such a bustle ensued that you might have thought, a goose the rarest of old birds, a feathered phenomenon, to which a black swan was a matter of course. And in truth, it was something very like like it in the house. Mrs. Cratchit made the gravy, ready beforehand a little saucepan, hissing hot. Master Peter mashed the potatoes with incredible vigor. Miss Belinda sweetened up the applesauce. Martha dusted the hot plates. Bob took Tiny Tim beside him in a tiny corner at the table. The two young Cratchits set chairs for everyone, not forgetting themselves, and mounting guard upon their post crammed spoons into their mouths lest they should shriek for the goose before their turn came to be helped. At last the dishes were set on, and grace was said. It was succeeded by a breathless pause as Mrs. Pratchett, looking slowly all along the carving knife, prepared to plunge it into the breast. But when she did, and when the long-expected gush of stuffing issued forth, one murmur of delight arose around the, around the board, and even tiny Tim, excited by the two young Pratchets, beat on the table with the with the handle of his knife, and feebly cried, "Hurrah! There never was such a goose. Bob said, as he, Bob said he didn't believe there ever was such a goose cooked. Its tenderness and flavor, size and cheapness were themes of the universal were themes of universal admiration. eked out by applesauce, or eked out by applesauce and mashed potatoes. It was a sufficient dinner for the whole family indeed, as Mrs. Cratchit said with great delight, surveying one small atom of a bone upon the dish. They hadn't ate it at all at least, they hadn't ate it at all at last, yet everyone had had enough, and the youngest Cratchits, in particular were steeped in sage and onion to the eyebrows. But now the plates being changed by Mrs. Belinda, by Miss Belinda, Mrs. Cratchit left the room alone, too nervous to bear witness to take the pudding up and bring it in. Suppose it should not be done enough. Suppose it should break and turn it out. Suppose somebody should have got over the, over the wall of the backyard and stolen it while, while, while they were marrying with the goose. A supposition at which the two young crotchets became livid. All sorts of horrors were supposed. Hello, a great deal, hello, a great deal of stream. steam. The pudding was out of the copper. A smell like a washing day. There was the cloth. "'a smell like an eating house "'and a pastry cook's next door to each other "'with a laundress is next door to that. "'That was the pudding. "'In half a minute, Mrs. Cratchit entered, flushed, "'but smiling proudly with the pudding, "'like a speckled cannonball, "'so hard and firm, "'blazing in half of, blazing in half, of half a quarter "'of a united brandy "'and bedlight with Christmas holly stuck in the top. "'Oh, a wonderful pudding,' Bob Cratchit said. "'And calmly,' Two, that he regarded it as the greatest success achieved. Mrs. has said that now that the, now, now the weight off her mind, she would confess she had her doubts about the quantity of flour. Everybody had something to say about it, but nobody said or thought it, it was that, it, it, it was at all small pudding for a large family. It would have been flat, he would say, to do so. Any Cratchit would have been blush to hit at such a thing. At last the dinner was all done. The cloth was cleared, the hearth swept, and the fire made up, the compound and the jug being tasted and considered perfect. Apples and oranges were put upon the table, and a shovel full of chestnuts on the fire. Then all the Cratchit family drew round the hearth in what Bob Cratchit called a circle, meaning half a one and at Bob Cratchit's elbow stood the family display of glass, two tumblers, and a custard cup without a handle. These held the hot stuff from the jug. However, as well as gold goblets, golden goblets would have done, and Bob served it out with beaming looks, while the chestnuts on the fire sputtered and crackled noisily. Then Bob proposed, A Merry Christmas to us all, my dears. God bless us. Which all the family echoed. God bless us, everyone," said Tiny Tim, the last of all. He sat very close to his father's side, upon his little stool. Bob held held his withered little hand to his, as if he loved, as if he loved the child, and wished to keep him by his side and dreaded that he might not that he might be taken from him. Spirit said Scrooge, with an interest he had never felt before, "Tell me if Tiny Tim will live." "I see a vacant seat," replied the ghost and the poor chimney-corner and a crutch without an owner carefully preserved. If these shadows remain unaltered by the future, the child will die. No, no, said Scrooge. Oh, no, kind spirit. Say he will be spared. If these shadows remain unaltered by the future, none of my race, excuse me, if these shadows remain unaltered by the future, none none other of my race, returned the ghost, will find him. What then? If he be like to die, he had he had better do it and decrease the surplus population. Scrooge hung his head to hear his own words quoted by the spirit and was overcome with penance and grief. Man, said the ghost, if man be in your heart, if man you be in heart, not adamant forbear that wicked that wicked can't until you have discovered what the surplus is and where it is, will you decide what men shall live, what men shall die? It may be that, in the sight of heaven, you are more worthless and less fit to live than millions like this poor man's child. O oh God, to hear the in- insect on the leaf pronouncing on the too much life among his hungry brothers in the dust. Scrooge bent before the ghost's rebuke and, trembling, cast his eyes upon the ground. But he raised them speedily on hearing his own name. Mr. Scrooge, said Bob. I'll give you Mr. Scrooge, the founder of the feast." "'The founder of the feast, indeed,' cried Mrs. Cratchit, reddening. I wish I had him here, I'd give him a piece of my mind to feast feast upon, and I hope he'd have a good appetite for it. "'My dear,' said Bob, children, Christmas Day.'" "'It should be Christmas Day, I am sure,' she said, "'on which one drinks the which one drinks the health of such an odious, stingy, hard, unfeeling man as Mr. Scrooge. You know he is, Robert. Nobody knows it better than you. Poor fellow, my dear," was, Bob, was Bob's mild answer. Christmas Day, I'll drink his health for your sake and the day," said Mrs. Cratchit. Not for his. Long life to him, a merry Christmas and a happy New Year. He'll be very merry and very happy. I have no doubt. The children drank the toast after her. It was the first of their proceedings, which had no heartiness in it. Tiny Tim drank it last of all, but he didn't care two pence for it. Scrooge was the ogre of the family. The mention of his name cast a dark shadow on the party, which was not dispelled for, for, for a full five minutes. After they passed away, they, they were 10 times merrier than before. From the mere relief of Scrooge to the baleful being done with it, Bob Cratchit told them how how he had a situation in his eye for the master Pete, for, for Master Peter, which would bring in, if obtained, full five and sixpence weekly. The two young Cratchits laughed tremendously at the idea of Peter's being a man of business, and Peter himself looked thoughtfully at the fire from at the fire from between his collars, as if he were deliver, deliberating. Excuse me a second. What particular what particular investments he should favor when he came into the receipt of that bewildering income. Martha, who was a poor apprentice at the, at the milliners, then told him what kind of work she had to do and how many hours she worked at a stretch and how she meant, she meant to lie in bed tomorrow morning for a good long rest. Tomorrow being a holiday, she passed at home. Also, how she had seen a countess and a lord some days before, and how the Lord was much about as tall as Peter, at which Peter pulled up his collar so high that you couldn't have seen his head if you had been there. All this time the chestnuts and the jug went round and round, and by and by they had, they, they had a song about a lost child traveling in the snow from Tiny Tim, who was playing who was plaintive little voice, who had a plaintive little voice, and sang it very well indeed. There was nothing of high mark in this. They were not a handsome family. They were not well-dressed. Their shoes were far from being waterproof. Their clothes were scanty and Peter might have known and very likely did the inside of a pawnbroker's, but they were happy, grateful, pleased with one another and contented with the time. And when they faded and looked at, and, and looked happier yet in the bright sprinklings of the spirit's touch at parting Scrooge had his eye upon them, and especially on Tiny Tim, until the last. By this time it was getting dark and snowing pretty heavily, and as Scrooge and the spirit went along the streets, the brightness of the roaring fires in the kitchens, parlors, and all sorts of rooms was wonderful. Here, the flickering of the blaze showed preparations for a cozy dinner, with hot plates baking through and, and through before the fire, and deep red curtains, ready to be drawn to shut out cold and darkness. There, all the children of the house were running out in the snow to meet their married sisters, brothers, cousins, uncles, and aunts, and be the first to greet them. Here again were shadows on the window blinds of guests assembling. And there a group of handsome girls, all hooded and fur booted, and all chattering at once, tripped lightly off off to some near neighbor's house, where, woe upon the single man, whoever saw them, enter. Artful witches, well, they knew it in a glow. But if you had judged from the numbers of people on their way to friendly gatherings, you might have thought that no one was at home to give them welcome. Instead, every instead of every house expecting company, and piling up its fires half chimney high, blessings on it! How the ghost exulted! How it bared! How it bared its breath abreast and opened its. Kit, capacious palm, and floated on, outpouring with generous hand its bright and harmless mirth on everything within its reach. The very lamplighter, who ran on before dotting the dusky street with specks of light, and who was dressed to spend the evening somewhere, laughed out loudly as the spirit passed through the little kennel, the lamplighter that he had any company for Christmas. And now, without a word of warning from the ghost, they stood upon a bleak and desert desert moor, where monstrous masses of rude stone were cast about, as though it were the burial place of giants, and water spread itself wheresoever it listed, or would have done so, but for the frost that held it prisoner, and nothing grew but moss and furs, and furze, furzy, I guess it's furzy, and coarse, red grass. Down in the west, the setting sun had left a streak of fiery red, which glared upon the desolation for an instant, like a sullen eye, and frowning lower, lower, lower yet, was lost in the thick gloom of the darkest night. What is this place? Asked Scrooge. A place where miners live, who labor in the bowels of the earth, returned the spirit, but they know me, see? A light shone from the window of a hut, and swiftly they advanced towards it. Passing through the wall of the mud and stone, they found a cheerful company assembled round a glowing fire. An old, old man and woman with their children and their children's children and another generation beyond that, all decked out gaily in their holiday attire. The old man, in a voice that seldom rose above the howling of the wind upon the barren waste, was singing them a Christmas song. It had been a very old song when he was a boy, and from time to time they all joined in the chorus. So surely as they raised their voices the old man got quite blithe and loud, and so surely as they stopped his vigour sank again. The spirit did not tarry here, but bade Scrooge hold his robe, and passing on a more, sped whither? Not to see, to see. To Scrooge's horror, looking back, he saw the last of the land, a frightful range of rocks behind them, and his ears were deafened by the thundering of water as it ro- ro- rolled and roared, and raged among the dreadful caverns it had worn, and fiercely tried to undermine the earth. Built upon a dismal reef of sunken rocks, some league or so from the shore, on which, on which the water chafed and dashed, the wild earth threw, there stood a solitary lighthouse. Great heaps of seaweed clung to its base, and storm birds, born of the wind, one might suppose, as seaweed of the water rose and fell upon it, like the waves they skimmed. But even here, two men who watched the light had made a fire that, through the loophole in the thick stone wall, shed out a ray of brightness on the awful sea. Joining their horny hands over the rough table, the dusty horny hands, joined over their horny hands, uh, uh, join, 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 joining their horny hands over the rough table. At which they sat, they wished each other Merry Christmas in their, can of, in their can of grog. And one of them, the elder, the elder two, with his face all damaged and scarred with hard weather, and the figurehead of an old ship might be, struck up a sturdy song that was like a gale in itself. Again the ghost sped on, above the black and heaving sea, on, on, until being far away. As he told Scrooge, from any shore they lighted on, they lighted on a ship. They stood beside the helmsman at the wheel, look out in the bow, the officers who had the watch, dark ghostly figures in their several stations, but every man among them hummed a Christmas tune, or had a Christmas thought, or spoke below his breath to his companion or somebody on a Christmas day, with homeward hopes belonging to it. And every man on board, waking or sleeping, good or bad, had had a kinder word for one, for one another on that day than on any other day of the year, and had shared to some extent in his festivities and had remembered those he cared for at a distance, and had known that they delighted to remember him. It was a great surprise to Scrooge, while listening to to the moaning of the wind and thinking what a solemn thing it was to move move on through the lonely darkness over an unknown abyss, whose depths were secrets as profound as its death. It was a great surprise to Scrooge while thus, thus engaged to hear a hearty laugh. It was a much greater surprise to Scrooge to recognize it as his own nephew's, and to find himself in a bright, dry, gleaming room with, with the spirit standing smiling by his side and looking at that same nephew with approving uh, uh, affability. Ha ha! laughed Scrooge's nephew. Ha ha ha! If you should happen by any unlikely chance to know a man more blessed. In a laugh and Scrooge's nephew all I can say is I should like to know him too introduce him to me and I'll cultivate his acquaintance it is a fair even-handed noble adjustment of things that while there is infection in disease and sorrow there is nothing in the world so irresistibly cont- contagious as laughter and good humor but Scrooge's nephew laughed in this way holding his sides rolling his head and twisting his face into the most extravagant contortions, Scrooge's niece, by marriage, laughed, and hardly was he. And their assembled friends, being not a bit behindhand, roared out lustily. Ha 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 ha! He said that Christmas was a, was a humbug, as I live, cried Scrooge's nephew. He believed it, too. More shame for him, Fred said Scrooge's niece, indignantly. Bless those women, they never do anything by halves, they are always in earnest. She was very pretty, exceedingly pretty, with a dimpled, surprised-looking capital face, a ripe little mouth that seemed made to be kissed, as no doubt it was, all kinds of good, all kinds of good little dots about her chin that melted into one another when she laughed, and the sunniest pair of eyes you ever saw in any little creature's head. Altogether, she was what you would have called provoking you know, but satisfactory, too. Oh, the perf- oh, perfectly satisfactory. He's a comical old fellow, said Scrooge's nephew. That's the truth, and not so pleasant as he might be. However, his offensives carry their own punishment, and I have nothing to say against him. I'm sure he's very rich, Fred, hinted Scrooge's niece. At least you always tell me so. What of that, my dear, says Scrooge's nephew. I'm going to read some of his messages real quick. I've got a thing right in front of where I need to be. Unfortunately, I can't read your messages. I've got a stupid thing from Carell there, so sorry, guys. Um, What of that, my dear, says Scrooge's nephew. His wealth is of no use to him. He didn't do any good with it. He didn't make himself comfortable with it. He hasn't the satisfaction of thinking, ha, 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 that he is ever going to benefit any of us with it. I have no patience with him, observed Scrooge's niece. Scrooge's niece, niece's sisters and all other ladies expressed the same opinion. Oh, I have, said Scrooge's nephew. I am sorry for him. I couldn't be angry with him if I tried. Who suffers by his ill whims? <laughs> Himself always. Here he takes it into his head To dislike us and he won't come and dine with us what's the consequence he didn't lose much of a dinner indeed i think he he loses a very good dinner interrupted scrooge's niece everybody else said the same and they must be allowed to have to have been competent judges because they had just had dinner and with the dessert upon the table were clustered around the fire by lamplight well i'm very glad to hear it said scrooge's nephew because I haven't any great faith in these young housekeepers. What do you say, Topper? Topper had clearly got his eye upon one of Scrooge's niece's sisters, for he answered that the bachelor was a wretched outcast who had no right to express any opinion on the subject. Whereat Scrooge's niece's sister, the plump one with a, with a lace tucker, not the one with the roses blushed. Don't go on, Fred, said Scrooge's niece. Clapping, any great faith in these young housekeepers? Oh, sorry about this. Clapping her hands. He never finishes what he begins to say. He is such a ridiculous fellow. Scrooge's nephew reveled in another laugh, and as it was impossible to keep the infection off, though the Flump sister tried hard to do it with aromatic vinegar. And his, and aromatic vinegar his example was unanimous and followed. I was only going to say, said Scrooge's nephew, that the consequence of his taking to dis- a dislike to us and not making merry with us is, as I think, that he loses some pleasant moments which could do him no harm. I'm sure he loses pleasanter companions than he can find in his own thoughts, either in his moldy old office or his dusty chambers. I mean to give him the same chance every year, whether he likes it or not, for I pity him. He may rail at Christmas, till so he dies, but he can't help thinking better of it. I defy him if he finds me going there, in good temper, year after year, and saying, Uncle Scrooge, how are you? If it only put him in the vein to leave his poor, poor clerk fifty pounds, that's something. And I think I shook him yesterday. It was their turn to laugh now at the notion of his shaking Scrooge, but being thoroughly good-natured and not much caring of. Of what they laughed at, so that they laughed at any rate. He encouraged them in their merriment and passed the bottle joy- joyously. After tea, they had some music, for they were a musical family and knew what they were about. When they sang, when they sang a clear catch, I can assure you, especially Topper, who had who could growl away in, in the bass like a good one, and never swell the large veins in his forehead or get red in the face over it, Scrooge's niece played well upon the harp, and played, among other tunes, a simple little air, a mere nothing you might learn to whistle, which had been familiar to the child who fetched Scrooge from the boarding school, as he had been reminded by the ghost of Christmas Past. When this strain of music sounded, all the things that the ghost had shown him came upon his mind. He softened more and more and thought that if he could have listened to it often years ago, he might have cultivated the, the kindness. Okay, let me go back. Okay. He might have cultivated where are we? Okay, he might have cultivated the kindnesses of life for his own happiness. With his own hands, without resorting to the sex and spade that buried Jacob Marley. But they didn't devote the whole evening to music. After a while they played at forfeits, for it's good to be children sometimes, and never better than at Christmas, when its mighty founder was a child himself. Stop. There was a first game at Blind Man's There was first a game of Blind Man's Bluff. Of course there was. And I no more believe Topper was really blind than I believe he had eyes in his boots. My opinion is that it was done. It was a done thing between him and Scrooge's nephew, and that the ghost of Christmas present knew it. The way he went after that plump sister in the lace tucker tucker was an outrage on the credulity of human nature. Knocking down the fire irons, tumbling over the chairs, bumping up against the piano, smothering himself amongst the curtains, wherever she went, there he went. He always knew where where the plump sister was, he wouldn't catch anybody else if you had fallen up against him, as some of them did on purpose. He would have made a feint of endeavoring to seize you, which would have been an affront to your understanding, and would be instantly have sidled off the direction of the plump sister. She often cried out that it wasn't fair, and it really was not, but when at last he caught her, when in spite of all her silken rustlings and her rapid flutterings passed him, he got her in a corner of the room, where there was no escape, that his conduct was the most execrable, For his pretending not to know her, his pretending that it was necessary to touch her, her headdress, and further to assure himself of her identity by pressing a certain ring upon her finger, and a certain chain about her neck, was vile, monstrous. No doubt she told him her opinion of it. When another blind man, being in office, they were so very confidential together behind the curtains. Scrooge's niece was not one of the blind man's bluff party, one of the blind man's bluff party, but was made comfortable with a large chair and, foot, and a footstool in a snug corner where the ghosts and Scrooge were close behind her. But she joined in the forfeits and loved and loved her love to the admiration, admiration with all the letters of the, of the alphabet. Likewise, at the game of how, when, and where, she was very great, and, to the secret joy of Scrooge's nephew, beat her sisters hollow, though they were sharp girls too, as toppers could have told you. There might have been 20 people there, young and old, but they all played, and so did Scrooge, for wholly forgetting, and the interest he had in what was going on, that his voice made no sound in, in their ears, he sometimes came out with his guess quite loud, and very often guessed right too, for the sharpest needle, best white chapel warranted but not cut in the eye, was not sharper than Scrooge, blunt as he took it in his head to be. The ghost was greatly pleased to find him in this mood, and looked upon him with such favour that he begged he begged like a boy to be to be allowed to stay until the guest departed. But this was the spirit, but this the spirit said so could not be done. Here is a new game, said Scrooge. One half hour one half-hour spirit, only one. It was a game called Yes and No, where Scrooge's nephew had to think of something, and the rest must find out what. He, he only answered their questions, yes or no, as the case was. The brisk fire of questioning to which he was exposed elicited from him that he was thinking of an animal, a live animal rather than a disagreeable animal, a savage animal, an animal that growled and grunted sometimes and talked sometimes and lived in London and walked about the streets, and wasn't made a show of, and wasn't led by anybody, and didn't live in a menagerie, and was never killed in a market, and was not a horse, or an ass, or a cow, or a bull, or a tiger, or a dog, or a pig, or a cat, or a bear. At every fresh question that was put to him, this nephew burst into the fresh a fresh roar of laughter, and was so inexpressibly tickled that he was obliged to, to get up off the sofa and stamp. At last, the Plump sister, falling into a similar state, cried out, I have found it out. I know what it is, Fred. I know what it is. What is it? cried Fred. It's your uncle, Scrooge. Which it certainly was. Admiration was was a universal sentiment, though some objected that the reply to it, that that the reply is it a bear? Ought to have been yes, inasmuch (laughs) as an answer in the negative was sufficient to have diverted their thoughts from Mr. Scrooge, supposing they had they had ever had any tendency that way. He has given us plenty of merriment, I'm sure, said Fred, and it would be ungrateful not to, not to drink his health. Here is a glass of mulled wine and wine ready to our hand at the moment. And I say, Uncle Scrooge? Well, Uncle Scrooge, they cried. A Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year to the old man. Whatever he is, said Scrooge's nephew. He wouldn't take it from me, but he may have it, nevertheless. Uncle Scrooge. Uncle Scrooge had had interceptedly become so gay and light of heart that he would have pledged the unconscious company in return and thanked them in in, an audible speech if the ghost had given him time. But the whole scene passed off in the the breath of the last words spoken by his nephew and he and the spirit were again upon their travels. Much they saw, and far they went, and many homes they visited, but always with a happy end. The spirits stood beside sick beds, and they were cheerful on, on foreign lands, and they were close at home by struggling men, and they were patient in their greater hope, by poverty, and it was rich. And all was house, hospital, and goal. In misery is every refuge, where vain man and his Wherever man in his little brief authority had not made fast the door and barred the spirit out, he left his blessing and taught Scrooge his precepts. It was a long night, if it were only a night. But Scrooge had his doubts, and this, because the Christmas holiday appeared to be condensed into the space of time they had passed together. It was—it was strange too—that while Scrooge remained unaltered in his outward form. The ghost grew older, clearly older. Scrooge had observed this change, but never spoke of it until they left the children. Until they left the children's Twelfth Night party, when looking at the spirit as as they stood together in an open place, he noticed that his hair was gray. "Are spirits' lives so short?" asked Scrooge. "My life upon this globe is very brief," replied the spirit. "It ends tonight." "Tonight!" cried Scrooge. "Tonight at midnight. Hark! The time is drawing near." The chimes were ringing three-quarters past eleven at the moment. Forgive me if I am not justified in what I ask, said Scrooge, looking intently at the spirit's robe, but I see something strange and not belonging to yourself, protruding from your skirts. Is it a foot or a claw? It might be a claw, for the, for the flesh there is upon it, was the spirit's sorrowful reply. Look here, from the foldings of its robe, it brought two children, wretched, abject, frightful, hideous, miserable, They knelt down at its feet and clung upon the outside of its garment. Oh, man, look here, look down here, exclaimed the ghost. There were a boy and a girl, yellow, meager, ragged, scowling and wolfish, but prostrate, too, in their humility. Where graceful youth should should have filled their features out and touched them with his freshest tints, a stale and shriveled hand like that of like that of age had pinched and twisted and pulled them into threads. Where angels might have sat enthroned, devils lurked and glared out menacingly. No change, no degradation, no perversion of, of humanity, and any grade through all of which the mysterious of wonderful creation has monsters have half so horrible in dread. Scrooge started back, appalled. Having their shown to him in this way, he tried to say they were fine children, but the words choked themselves, rather than be parties to a lie of such enormous magnitude. Spirit, are they yours? Scrooge could say no more. They are man's, said the spirit, looking down upon them, and they cling to me, appealing from their fathers. This boy is ignorance, this girl is want. Beware of them both, and all of, the, all of their degree. But most of all, beware of this boy, for on his brow I see that written which is doom, unless the writing be erased. Deny I? cried the spirit. Stretching out his hand toward the city, towards the city, slander those who tell it, who tell it ye, and bid it for your f- facetious purposes, and make it worse, and by the end. Have they no refuge or resource? cried Scrooge. Are there no prisons? said the spirit, turning on him for the last time with his own words. Are there no workhouses? The bell struck twelve. Scrooge looked about him for the ghost, and saw it not. As the last stroke ceased to vibrate, he remembered the, he remembered the the prediction of the old of old Jacob Marley, and lifting up his eyes, behold a solid beheld a solemn phantom, draped and hooded, coming like a mist along the ground towards him. Okay, well that's it for tonight. As we go to stage four on this, um, let me get some water here. My mouth is really really dry, but um. It's been a nice and fun read, and I'll see you guys next Sunday. It helps to have a book I can read. And I'll see you guys next Sunday, same time, 6.30. If you're a fan of the California Haunts Radio Show, we will be back here tomorrow at 6.30 p.m. Pacific with Lori uh, Spagna. And she is a pet psychic who will be on doing live readings tomorrow. So we're going to talk to her. So I'm looking forward to that. But I really, let me get these things off. I appreciate you guys coming tonight to hear the story, to hear the reading. And like I said, we're going to read every Sunday up until Christmas. Now, if we finish this book, there we go. If we finish this book, then um, I'll probably move on to another book. Maybe, maybe the Polar Express, something like that, or Mrs. Miracle. You know, something like that. But just something to lead us into Christmas and maybe into New Year's. We'll see. But I thank you guys for coming. And like I said, I will see you all tomorrow. Have a good night.